Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah, we already, as you probably heard in back there, have uh, Angel Tree families filing in. And so uh, we are inviting them to stay for service. Uh, Many are not taking us up on that offer, but uh, be silently praying that many would stay uh, because Christmas, as wonderful as it is to have the trees and the decorations and exchanging gifts, the best part of Christmas is always Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're so glad that you're here today. Do make sure you have those Bibles. And if perchance you missed one, uh, raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible or message notes. Those are important to have as well. So you can jot down some notes and fill in some blanks during the message today. So today, part three of our message series, The Dividing Line. That dividing line of history is the birth of Jesus Christ, dividing B.C. from A.D. And we are looking all month long at some of those wonderful prophetic scriptures from the Old Testament written hundreds of years before Jesus was actually born, and we can sense the anticipation in those scriptures as they longed for the day when the Savior of the world would be born. Amen? Well, this past week, I uh, looked at some inspiring true stories of missionaries who served the Lord so faithfully during the 1800s. And I just wanted to share a couple of those quick ones with you this morning. First of all, John Getty. In the 1840s, John Getty left his uh, pastor position in Canada along with his wife and his two small kids. And John Getty and his family of four traveled 20,000 miles southeast or southwest into uh, the South Sea Islands. Uh, Specifically, they went to the New Hebrides Islands, which are about 1,000 miles off the northeast coast of Australia. And they went to the islands because they wanted to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people who lived there. Now, unfortunately, those who lived there were headhunters. Just a few months before John Getty arrived in the New Hebrides Islands, just a few months before they arrived, there had been a British ship that arrived in those islands. And I think, make sure I have the number right here, 20 crew members were killed and eaten. By the natives in those islands, but John Getty felt a call of the Lord, so he and his family went anyway. Well, it was quite a struggle. They had to learn the language. There was no written form of the native language in those islands, so actually uh, he had a part in playing to create an alphabet and a written language. And over the next 24 years, John Getty led a few people to Christ, and then the next year a few more, and then a few more after that. And by the time he left those islands 24 years later, John Getty had translated the entire Bible into the native tongue of those islanders. And they placed a plaque in the pulpit where he had preached for so many years, and the plaque read like this. In memory of John Getty, when he landed in 1848, there were no Christians here. And when he left in 1872, there were no heathen. Isn't that cool? 24 years, he planted 20 churches and led the whole island where he was to Christ. I think that's pretty cool. Then there was the famous missionary by the name of David Livingston. Many of you have probably heard of him. He was a hero in England in the 1800s because he went into Africa, began in South Africa, and hoofed it north, blazing a trail where no European had ever been before. And he was an explorer. He was an adventurer. He had three different expeditions to the central part of Africa. He made thousands of discoveries. He led many people to Christ. But at the same time, when he did this throughout the 1800s, he was dirt poor. His wife and kids were left at home uh, back in England, and they barely had uh, two pennies to to rub together. But he pressed on, and he pressed on. And and one day, knowing that he didn't have much help and knowing that he didn't have much money, he sent out a plea for extra helpers, and they sent this letter back to David Livingston. And this is what their letter said. They said, hey, if there is a good road... To lead to where you are, we have people who would be happy to come. Well, here's how he responded. If you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, 
I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. Isn't that good? And I got thinking about that. That really gets me thinking. How many Christians today are willing to say, God, yeah, I love this idea to lead people to Christ. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I love this idea of leading people to Christ, uh, but I'm willing to do it only on my own terms. I'm willing to, to go out and, and go on this mission trip as long as it only lasts a week, no longer. I'm willing to go out and, and share Christ with that group of people that need someone to share with them, but uh, I can only do it if it doesn't take much effort and it doesn't cost me any money. Uh, God, I'm willing to go share Christ with those people and lead them to you uh, as long as there's a nice smooth road leading there. I don't want too many bumps along the way. And then sadly, there are many other Christians who won't even go that far. They don't want to share Christ with anyone. And many Christians, instead of going and doing what Christ has called us to do, when pressed to throw a lifeline to lost and dying people, they think it's easier just to throw some money at it. It's easier just to send a check, right? Just, just send a check. But aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came to earth? Can you get these slides moving a little quicker, guys? So, aren't you thankful that when our world desperately needed a Savior, God didn't just send a check. He sent His Son. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? Oh, man, we got Dane going to hell. Oh, I'll write a check and send it down to earth. Oh, no, we got all these people in Victorville. Oh, they, they're desperate. They, they have no hope of making it to heaven on their home. A God will just write a check and send it down. It's a lot easier for God to do that, right? But he didn't send a check. He sent his son. I'm so thankful for that. You see, God didn't wait for a good road before he sent Jesus to earth to save us from our sins. He came when there was no road at all. In fact, Jesus came to earth to build the road. Jesus himself is the road. He is the road leading to healing. He's the road leading to freedom. He's the road leading to salvation. He's the road leading to heaven. And 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, makes that clear. So do turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Once again, I encourage you to read it in your own Bible there in front of you. Don't just take my word for it. Have those message notes handy. Be able to jot down some notes along the way here. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And that's where we're going to hang our hat this morning. That's where our focus is going to be. This wonderful prophecy written some 700 years before Jesus was born. Beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. And recovery and release from the darkness for those prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is precious. And it is powerful. Speak to us today through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So for 700 years, the Jewish rabbis looked at these three verses and wondered who they were talking about. Uh, many Jewish scholars, many rabbis made the case that these verses here in Isaiah 61 were talking about the ministry of Isaiah himself. The prophet whose book this is named, whose you know, this book is named after. And so many thought he was talking about Isaiah here. It's Isaiah speaking. And others said, no, 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 no. I, I think this is a prophetic passage talking about some deliverer who God will send down the road. And then there were other rabbis who made the case that it wasn't just going to be any deliverer that this passage is talking about. It's talking about the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of the Jews. And so they went back and forth for some 700 years, and there are some clear indications in this uh, passage, these three verses, 
that God was, in fact, speaking about the coming Messiah. For example, you look at verse 3. You look at verse 3 there, and there seems to be this indication of this coming Messiah's work that's indicated there. For instance, if you go over to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, this is what you'll read. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. So the Jewish rabbis knew this passage in Jeremiah chapter 31 was clearly speaking about the Messiah. This was a messianic passage. This was a clear prophecy about what would happen in the days where the Messiah would set up his kingdom on earth. And so you look at verse 3 here in Isaiah 61, notice how similar it sounds to this passage here. Isaiah 61 verse 3, this anointed one will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So there were many leaders in Israel's history who fulfilled some of what this verse is talking about. But none of them fulfilled it like the Messiah would fulfill it. And so verse 3 is a pretty clear indication it's talking about the Messiah. But even there in verse 1, here in Isaiah 61, notice how this individual speaking is described. It says, you have anointed me. You have anointed me. And it's important to know what that means if you look at this next slide here. The word Messiah in Hebrew is the same as the word Christ in Greek. You translate both Messiah and Christ into English, it literally means the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus the anointed one. Amen? And so look at the language there in verse 1. You have anointed me. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He has anointed me. There in that first sentence of verse 1, the holiest name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, is used twice. Whenever you look in the Old Testament and find Lord spelled with all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, when you see that word Lord in all caps, it's an indication that that's a translation of the holiest name of God in Hebrew, that name Yahweh. It's used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. It's used twice here in the first part of verse 1. So listen to the power here. The spirit of the sovereign Yahweh is on me because Yahweh has anointed me. So that very word anointed, same root word as Messiah or Christ, is another indication that this passage is being spoken by the soon and coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, if there's any doubt that these verses are describing Jesus Christ, you only need to turn to the New Testament. So do that with me. Hold your place there in Isaiah 61. Turn to the third book in the New Testament, the book of Luke, beginning in chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Because if you turn to Luke chapter 4, you're going to recognize what Jesus says as he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He's just been baptized. He's just been out in the wilderness after his baptism for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and praying and being tempted by Satan. And right after that, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he gives, in essence, his inauguration speech to ministry. And what does he share in that inauguration speech? He shares Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses. And so here in Luke chapter 4, listen to what it says beginning in verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So it seems pretty clear he's given the book of the Bible to read from. Remember, they didn't have uh, the printing press back then. Everything was written on scrolls. So he was given the scroll of Isaiah And he chose to open up to Isaiah chapter 61. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Sound familiar? 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Huh. So if there was any doubt that Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 was referring to the coming Messiah, Jesus removes all doubt. Here in Luke 4, he shares the first verse and a half of Isaiah 61. And so Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 served as Jesus' inauguration speech to ministry. It declared who he was and what he had come to do. But did you notice that Jesus stopped reading halfway through verse 2 of Isaiah 61? If you go back and look at that, Isaiah 61, look at verse 2. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't even finish the sentence. Isn't that something? Why did Jesus not finish the sentence? Why did Jesus not finish the verse? Notice it said there in Luke 4 that when he rolled up the scroll, after stopping halfway through the sentence, the eyes of everyone were fastened on him. Why was that? Well, I'm convinced one of the reasons all the eyes were fastened on him, because all the Jews in that synagogue were wondering, why didn't you finish the verse, Jesus? Why didn't you finish the sentence? Those in the synagogue that day, they didn't like Rome too much, did they? Because at the time Jesus read this in Luke chapter 4, Rome was occupying Israel. And the Jews couldn't stand the fact that their holy nation of Israel was being occupied by the Romans. And so they loved this passage. Those that believed it was clearly talking about the coming Messiah, they were looking forward to the day that he would bring the day of our Lord. But they were even more looking forward to the day that he would bring vengeance against their enemies. So they weren't too happy with Jesus because he skipped their favorite part. Tell us about the vengeance, Jesus. We want to hear about the Messiah driving out these crummy Romans and getting rid of them once and for all. But he stops halfway through the verse. Why? Because Jesus understood that only the first verse and a half of Isaiah 61 applied to his first coming. He came to bring the day of the Lord. The day of deliverance. He came to preach good news to the poor. He came to heal and bind up the brokenhearted. He came to preach deliverance for those who were captives and in prisons. He, he came to uh, declare that it's the year of the Lord's favor. But it wouldn't be until his second coming that he would declare the day of vengeance of our God. And go on to do what's described in verse 3. That's describing the millennial kingdom of Christ. He stopped halfway through verse 2 because he was focused on the reason he came the first time. Amen? So I want us to look at verses 1 and the first half of verse 2 today. And look at these four wonderful descriptions of Jesus' mission during his first coming. It's a beautiful thing. So look at verse 1, first of all. And before we look at the first reason he came, I want you to notice there in verse 1 that that wonderful name Yahweh is used. We've talked about that. But if you look carefully in verse 1 of Isaiah 61, I think you'll notice that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned. We believe the Bible as Christians, don't we? And the Bible teaches us that there is only one God in the universe, but that one God is in three persons. Amen? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And so you look carefully at verse 1 here. It's referring to Yahweh, right? Normally in the Old Testament, that's a reference to Father God. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Who's talking? The Son of God, the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what is on him? The Holy Spirit. All three are mentioned in verse 1. If you want to find out more about the Trinity, the New Testament tells us more about the Trinity. But you find these places in the Old Testament where the Trinity is shared a little more subtly. And I love that. So in verse 1 we read that the Spirit of God is given to the Son of God by God the Father. You catch that? The Spirit of God is given to the Son of God by God the Father. All three working together here in verse 1. 
So, what is the first part of Jesus' mission during his first coming? Job number one was to preach good news to the poor. Say that with me. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. Tell the person next to you, Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. Come on, church, say it like you mean it. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. How many of you poor folk are happy he came for that purpose? I know I am. I want you to notice that this is the very first reason why Jesus came. His greatest sermon in the New Testament is his Sermon on the Mount. Would you agree? Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The greatest sermon Jesus ever preached. It's an amazing, amazing sermon. And in fact, I've become a fan over the years of great speeches in history. And there's some speeches I love in history. I love uh, the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, wonderful I Have a Dream speech. Uh, Patrick Henry, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. Those are great speeches, right? But the greatest of all time is the Sermon on the Mount spoken by Jesus Christ in Matthew 5 through 7. And do you remember how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount? He begins with the Beatitudes. Eight blessed are statements letting us know as followers of Christ the lives that God blesses, that he honors, that he rewards. And so you look at the very first of those Beatitudes at the start of the greatest sermon in the history of the world. The very first Beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be humble and to be empty in spirit. The Expositor's Bible Commentary, I think, says it so well. It describes that... uh, that beatitude this way to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy it confesses one's unworthiness before god and utter dependence on him all must begin by confessing that by themselves they can achieve nothing isn't that good they can achieve nothing so why did jesus come to earth first and foremost he came to earth to offer good news to those who are humble enough To understand the bad news. The bad news is that we are all spiritually bankrupt without Christ. We can never be good enough. We can never be obedient enough. We can never be religious enough to make it to heaven. The audacity to think that I could be good enough or righteous enough or religious enough to make it to heaven on my own. What a fool I would be to think that. I can never be good enough for the holiest being in the universe. Our creator God. We are helpless and we are hopeless. That's the bad news. But Jesus came to bring the good news. Amen. The good news that he had made a way where there seemed to be no way. He came to share the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He came to share the good news that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. He came to share the good news that he would conquer sin and death and the grave. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of our loved members here at Impact Christian Church experienced his victory on Friday night. We've been praying for months for one of our worship leaders, Willie Williams. I've known Willie for probably 20 years now, about almost, 18 years or so. Willie has one of the best singing voices I have ever heard in my life. And what a gift he had to lead worship. And he battled stage four bone cancer over the last several years. And he kept it to himself. He didn't want to worry you. He didn't want to let on how much pain he was in. Those of you who were here a year ago when Willie was leading worship, you'd notice he was always sitting down on stage here because he could not stand up for more than a few seconds. He went to be with the Lord Friday night. And from a human point of view, we we grieve because we loved Willie. And we wanted to see him healed of cancer here. But we step back and look at it from a biblical perspective. We look at it from God's perspective. And cancer did not win. God delivered Willie. And he left that cancer-filled tent behind. 
and the soul and spirit of the man we loved experiences now victory in heaven. Amen? And so we can thumb our noses and go to death and say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gave Willie the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why He came, first and foremost, to preach good news to those who are humble enough and empty enough to realize the bad news that we are lost without Jesus Christ. But as we're lost and as we're empty, we can reach out to Him and He will fill us up in a way we can never be filled without Him. Well, Jesus came to preach good news to the poor, but His mission didn't stop there. Number two, Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Read that with me. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. How many of you today or at some point over the last few years have been brokenhearted? Jesus came for you. King David writes in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So who are the brokenhearted? Well, there's no sense trying to sugarcoat it. The brokenhearted are those who feel like life has chewed them up and spit them out. Some of you I know felt that way in the past. Some of you may be feeling that way today. You feel like life, you know, you got the short end of the stick when it came to coming to earth. Life chewed you up and spit you out. Those you've trusted have stabbed you in the back. Those you've loved have rejected you. After pouring so much blood and sweat and tears into your hopes and your dreams, your hopes have been dashed and your dreams have been shattered, leaving you brokenhearted. But the brokenhearted doesn't just include those who have been beat up by life. The brokenhearted also includes those who have loved and lost. Some of you are in that boat today. You've loved and you've lost. Life was going so well. But seemingly out of nowhere, death came knocking. Cancer took your wife. A sudden heart attack, unexpected, took your husband. Maybe you had that sweet little girl that meant more to you than life itself who was crossing the street as a drunk driver squealed around the corner and took her out. And all of a sudden she's no longer here and you'll never see her this side of heaven and your heart breaks. Well, guess what? Jesus is the great physician. Jesus' operating room is open for business. And he specializes in binding up broken hearts. Just a few weeks ago, we did a funeral here at Impact for a sweet young family, the Ramirez family. Grandparents are here with us today. Actually, aunt and uncle, excuse me, here with us today. And uh, that sweet little eight-year-old with a severe case of cerebral palsy passed away. Mom and dad were devastated. Why do things like that happen? They're heartbroken. And Jesus came for mom and dad, for Steve and Monica. And God came for aunt and uncle, Yolanda and Joe. And God has come for you if you're experiencing that broken heart. The good news is Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. Jesus came to bind up to bandage up, to wrap up the serious wounds of a broken heart, to give hope and courage and encouragement to those that are brokenhearted. But you know, the good news just keeps getting gooder. Because Jesus came for a third purpose. He came to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Read that with me. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Isn't that good news? God's word is so rich, we could easily spend our whole lifetimes plumbing the depths of God's word. I'd like to point out some of the hidden treasures within these first two verses of Isaiah 61. You see, in Old Testament Israel, there were three types of people who were anointed with oil prophets, priests, and kings. And so, prophets 
would tend to be anointed when they began their prophetic ministry. Priests, when they were serving at the temple, oftentimes would be anointed. And kings, at their inauguration, at their coronation, would be anointed. So take a look at this. I think this is so cool from these first two verses. Preaching is the job of the prophet. What was the first reason Jesus came? To preach good news to the poor. Amen? Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Number two, priests were anointed. Their specialty was offering sacrifices to try to atone for sin. So you could look at it this way. A priest's specialty was spiritual wound binding. Amen? You came with your gaping sin and they tried to suture it up as best they could. That's what a priest would do. Well, spiritual wound binding is the job of the priest. Jesus is the ultimate priest. That was his second purpose, to bind up the brokenhearted. Amen? And then it was the kings. If you were taken as a POW to an enemy camp, it was the king's job to come in with his army and save the day and rescue you. That's a king's job, to rescue POWs. Jesus is the ultimate king because he came to set free the captives and set free the prisoners. Amen? So Jesus was the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. I bet you didn't catch that when you read these first two verses. But they are talking about the coming Messiah, the anointed one, who would be the ultimate anointed priest, the ultimate anointed prophet, and the ultimate anointed king. He is the ultimate Messiah. Jesus came to set us free from our captivity to sin and death. In John 8:34, Jesus tells his disciples plainly, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Two verses further down, he says in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. With these verses in mind, the Apostle Paul later writes in Galatians chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus came to set us free. Amen? So many might ask, well, what did he come to set us free from? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. He came to set us free from our slavery to sin. Amen? Not only that, he came to set us free from our slavery to the law that condemns us for our sin. Amen? But it doesn't even stop there. He came to set us free from eternal damnation in hell. And Jesus Christ came to earth to set us free from even more. Because He is the ultimate Savior. The ultimate anointed King. Now let me ask you. Why do we sin? He sets us free from our slavery to sin and the condemnation of sin and the eternal punishment because of sin. But why do we sin in the first place? And the simplest answer I can give you is we sin because sin is fun. Right? Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Why do people have sex that they're not married to? Premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, whatever. Why do people have sex to someone they're not married to? Because it's fun. We can be honest in church, can't we? They say, yeah, I'm doing it because it's fun. Why do people drink too much? Because it's fun to drink too much. Why do people get high? Because it's fun. Why do people, when they're going through school, cheat on tests? It's more fun to get an A than it is to get an F if you forgot to study, right? It's fun. Why do people tell lies? Because it's no fun to be caught doing something stupid, so you cover it with a lie. It's more fun for people to think you're not a complete idiot. But a little secret, they already know you're an idiot. Might as well tell the truth. Why do we lie? Why do we cheat? Why do we steal? Why do we gossip, ladies? It's more fun to tear someone down to build yourself up. That's not just the ladies, guys. You participated in it as well. Ah, man, they bait us, man, online, social media. Oh, here's the headline about so-and-so. Wow, I saw one the other day. It kept popping up. Celebrities who did not age well. And that old sinful nature wants to say, ooh, click on that one. I want to see who's uglier than sin 20 years after they were a supermodel. And I said to myself, no, that's none of my business. That's cruel. 
That lady or that guy probably has a spouse. They probably have kids. They probably have grandkids. Can you imagine them seeing that millions of people are reading this smut about a family member they care about? No, that's tabloid smut. I don't need to read that stuff. Why do we sin, though? We sin because it's fun. We sin because it's fun. But you know what? Just like the alcoholic who is a slave to the bottle but can't see it, most people around us are slaves to their own sin and can't see it either. But once their eyes are opened and they realize they are slaves to sin and death because sex enslaves you if it's outside of marriage. Alcohol and drugs enslaves you, as many of you can testify to because you're recovering addicts or alcoholics. That enslaves you if you give your life over to it. Every sin enslaves. It looks so wonderful and fun in the moment, but it comes at such a high price. And Jesus Christ came to set us free. No matter what your sin is, Jesus can set you free from that sin. Amen? Jesus rides in as a conquering king and can set you free. Praise God, he can set you free from drugs. He can set you free from addiction to alcohol. He can set you free from your premarital sex. He can set you free from your affair that's destroying your marriage. He can set you free from your foul mouth as you're dropping F-bombs every other sentence. He can set you free from cheating on your income tax. He can set you free from any of it. Because he is the ultimate anointed conquering king who sets captives free. It's just what he does. Amen? Finally, number four. What's the fourth reason he came? We find this in verse 2. He came to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. Say that with me. He came to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. Now, most of us would miss this. I missed it myself. Reading it the first few times, I had to dig a little deeper, and I got the aha moment that I want you to experience as well. What's he talking about, the year of the Lord's favor? It is an allusion to Leviticus chapter 25. Oh, yay, praise God, Leviticus 25. Yeah, right? Not too many of us get excited about Leviticus. I got vacation time coming. I'm going to read all of Leviticus. Woo! Not our favorite book. It's like reading numbers. You know, it's a great thing to read if you've got insomnia and need to fall asleep. But anyway, Leviticus 25. You know that in Exodus through Deuteronomy, part of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, the Jews called it the Torah, there are 613 laws of Moses that ancient Israel had to follow. They had to follow all 613 laws. Leviticus 25 focuses on a number of laws related to two things. Number one, the first few verses in Leviticus 25 talk about the Sabbath year. You've heard of a Sabbath day. What's a Sabbath year? Every seven years in ancient Israel, everyone who had soil had to leave the soil alone. They couldn't plow. They couldn't plant. They couldn't prune the vines of their grapevines. Uh, They couldn't do their normal big harvest. They had to leave the soil alone. They were supposed to give the land a year of rest every seventh year. It's called the Sabbath year. Well, if a family needed food to eat, they were allowed to pick any fruit that grew on its own that year or eat any vegetables that grew on their own that year. They could feed their family with that. But other than that, they couldn't touch the soil. They couldn't tend to it. It was a Sabbath year. Most of Leviticus chapter 25 focuses on the year of Jubilee. So the Sabbath year was every seven years, right? Many of you know numerology in Scripture, seven is the number of God. It's usually a very set-apart number, the number seven. You take the seventh year and multiply that times seven. Seven times seven equals? After the 49th year in ancient Israel, as you entered the 50th year, every 50th year was declared the year of Jubilee. After seven sevens, the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. In that year, really cool things happened. If you had gotten into debt and sold your house or sold your land over the prior 49 years, you would get it back in the 50th year. Isn't that cool? So let's say I I sell my my house uh, to Kaylee. When the 50th year happens, Kaylee has to give it back. Amen? Amen? I send my, sell my land to Bob. In the 50th year, Bob has to give it back. All land reverted back to its ancestral ownership, the family line. 
And so how it worked when you were buying land or buying houses in ancient Israel, you would count how many years this year is away from the next year of Jubilee. So if the next year of Jubilee is 40 years from now, I would charge you a lot for my house because you're going to have it for 40 years. But if the next year of Jubilee is just two years away, I'm going to give you a rock bottom price because you're only going to have that bad boy for two years. Then you've got to give it back to me, right? That's not the only thing that happened the year of Jubilee. Every debt in Israel was canceled. So if I was an indentured servant to you because I was up to debt in my eyeballs and I couldn't pay it off, so I basically sell myself to you as an indentured servant, in the 50th year, I'd be set free. I'm going home to my family. And I've got my debt paid in full. Wouldn't that be nice? Debt is paid in full in the year of Jubilee. And so God had the year of Jubilee as a way to balance the economy and keep the rich from exploiting the poor. So what is Jesus saying in Isaiah 61 verse 2 when he says he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? He's saying that he is coming to usher in the greatest year of Jubilee in the history of the world. Sin and Satan stripped us of our spiritual inheritance, but Jesus has restored it to us. We were sold as slaves to sin, but Jesus has set us free. We experienced a life filled with doom and gloom, but Jesus Christ has given us beauty for ashes and gladness instead of mourning and hope instead of despair and weeping has remained for a night, but Jesus Christ, praise God, has brought us joy in the morning. Amen? Aren't you glad that Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Aren't you glad that God didn't send us a check? He sent us His Son. There was a missionary to Africa a certain number of years ago, led an elderly African woman to Christ, and she was blind. She was illiterate. She could neither read nor write. But one day, this African woman came up to the missionary and asked him to give her a Bible. He thought that was a little odd because he knew she was blind, and even if she wasn't blind, she had no idea how to read. But he gave her the Bible, and she asked him to do him a favor. She said, can you underline in red John 3.16 and place a marker in the Bible so I can easily turn there? The missionary said, okay. But now his curiosity was aroused, and so... The next day, he followed her to see what she would do with that Bible, and he noticed that she walked over to the local schoolhouse, walked up the steps to the front door of that schoolhouse just a few minutes before the end of the school day. And so the bell rings, and the doors open, and the kids, it was all boys in that school, all the boys are filing out, and there she can feel him brushing up against her, and so she grabs one boy, and she has her Bible there, and she asks him, do you know how to read? And seeing that she was blind, he wanted to help. He said, yeah, I know how to read. She said, could you read this for me? So the boy would read John 3.16. And then she asked him the question, do you know what it means? And then she proceeded to tell him about Jesus Christ. She did this day after day after day, grabbing all these boys coming out of the schoolhouse. As the months went by, boy after boy, young man after young man began to accept Christ. And it got to a point where dozens of young boys in that school had accepted Christ. And several years later, the missionary learned that 24 of those boys who she had led to Christ became pastors. This is a woman who couldn't read. This is a woman who was blind and couldn't see. But she went to that schoolhouse day after day and led people to Jesus Christ. And yet you and I, we know how to read and our eyes work perfectly fine. And so many of us aren't even willing to walk across the street to tell even one person about Jesus. God has called us to be more like this woman. Jesus came to earth to preach good news to those who are humble and empty. He came to earth to bind up the emotional and the spiritual wounds of those who are heartbroken. 
He came to set the captives and prisoners free, and He came to proclaim that no matter how messy this world gets or how crummy our circumstances become, we can experience joy in Him. Amen? Amen. Jesus' mission was far too important for God to just send a check. So God sent His Son, and now He is sending you. Because you have the Son. He is sending you, just as He sent this blind African woman. He is sending you. There are so many people around you today who are slaves to sin and desperately need Jesus. So God refuses to send them a check. He's sending them you. Because you have Jesus inside of you. And more than anything else, those people around you who are poor and broken and held captive, they need Jesus more than anything else. And you've got Him. So God, I believe, is calling some of you to walk across the street and talk to your neighbor. Christmas is one week away. Talk to him about the reason we celebrate Christmas. God is calling some of you to go across to the other side of your office and talk to a co-worker. Some of you students, God is calling you to talk to a classmate across the classroom. And God is calling every single one of us to at the very least share Jesus Christ with our family members who need Jesus Christ more than anything else. Never forget God didn't send a check for you. He sent you His Son. And God will not send your coworker, your classmates, your neighbor, or your family member a check. He's already solved the problem by sending them you. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Lord, our hearts drop as we look at the situation in our nation. That morally, Lord, just diving deeper and deeper into sin. Our world is lost and dying. COVID has wreaked havoc on church attendance across this nation. Many Christians just stay home. They have other priorities. They have other needs. And meanwhile, the younger generations are becoming more and more unreached. A greater percentage of Americans are turning to atheism, agnosticism, Islam, Mormonism, and all sorts of things, Lord, instead of turning to the only one who can actually solve their problems both in this life and in eternity, Jesus Christ. And we sit on our hands, Lord, and oftentimes do nothing. Forgive us, O Lord. And I thank you for reminding us today that you didn't send me a check. You sent us your son. Help us to take your son to those who need him most. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I like that one. And I'm so grateful. And by the way, I'm not telling you it's, it's bad to, to give a family member or friend a gift card for a store. That's okay. But when it comes to their greatest need for salvation, don't take the shortcut. Take them to Jesus. Don't give them a check. Well, we've been giving away stuff all month long. And before our service ends, by the way, if anyone has never accepted Christ, please make sure you do that today. Before you leave, come see me, Ryan, Daniel, one of us up here, Kaylee. We'd be happy to talk to you about how you can leave this place today knowing Jesus Christ has washed your sins away and given you a brand new start. If you're humbly ready to come to Him, we'd love to pray with you and talk to you about accepting Jesus today and even getting baptized because that's the way we show we're serious about this. We're obeying Him by being baptized. And so if you have that decision and you need prayer, come and see us. But I do want to do a few final giveaways. Uh, First of all, uh, Alan at the fairgrounds yesterday, there were two different outreaches going on that we took part in. And Alan gave away over a hundred of his books uh, that had been purchased through donations that were given. Uh, most of you have heard me talk about this called to persevere. 
uh, one man's journey to overcome pain, disease, and disappointment with God. It's a powerful story. Some of you have already read it, uh, but we have a few wrapped copies. I've got three left today. These are for a purpose. I want to give these, these gifts to you to give as a gift to someone else. And so yesterday at one of the events, I talked to a man whose wife suddenly passed away a year ago. And so I gave him a copy of the book and signed it over to him because I thought that would be a blessing to him as he experiences this Christmas without his wife that he loved so much. He's struggling. We gave a few others to people that were dealing with physical disabilities and all sorts of things. So if there is anyone here and you have a family member or friend who has cancer, is maybe in their final stages of life with a terminal illness, maybe just really depressed, I want to give away three of these copies for you to give to them as a Christmas gift. It's wrapped and ready to go. Who would like it today? Okay, Patty. Amen. And maybe that's you. If you're going through one of those tough times. Okay, we've got one more, so just see Patty. Here you go, Patty. If you want that third book, get it from her. Thank you. We've got Joe over there. This next one is really cool. I mention Melly every once in a while. Melly used to be our greeter at the church, front door for many years. And uh, Melly's had MS for over 25 years, and now she's flat on her back in her retirement home. She can't get out of that bed, but on her back every day she's crocheting hats. And as she does that, our teenagers gave out, I think, a few dozen of these homemade hats uh, this last Friday night. And we especially like to get them to homeless. And Melly asked if we would get these to homeless people. And so I've got a bag full of these wonderful hats, different colors, made by hand by this sweet Saint Melly. Uh, can I get a few of you maybe to take two or three? And over the next day or two, wherever you find homeless people, especially if you're out at nighttime, bless them with a hat to help keep them warm. Anyone? Okay. And I'm going to give these to Cynthia. And so you see Cynthia if you'd like to help because we want to get these out certainly before Christmas. Amen. Uh, Others of you have gotten cards that we were handing out earlier in the day. And so next week, I hope that you'll join us on Christmas Day. Uh, Most of my kids' life. We've been at church on Christmas Day, whether it was a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, or in this case, a Sunday, because it hit me years ago. Christmas Eve really isn't a holiday. Christmas is. Christmas is the day we celebrate Christ's birth, so it just seemed to make sense to come together on Christmas morning, and so we do that most years here at Impact, and this being a Sunday, we're especially doing it this year. If you'd like to join us next week, it's a one-hour service. Once again, it's at 10 o'clock, not at 9 And it's going to be a wonderful family service. We'll have the kids in with us. We'll have more giveaways for that final Sunday of the month of December. It's going to be a great day to celebrate Christ. And so we hope that you can join us. Teenagers, college students, hope you can join us tonight for the youth Christmas party. See me if you have any questions. If you're a first-time visitor, see the lovely Sharon or Carrie at the blue table in back. They'll get you a gift for being a first-time visitor. And if I do not see you between now and Christmas, Merry Christmas, everyone. I love you. God bless you. Deserts they came, Messiah.